Good morning, everyone. I'm Nina Moyni, and this is NPR News. Thank you so much for joining us on this Friday morning. Well, it wasn't supposed to be like this, right? It was supposed to be a hot back summer, which if you're uncool like me, you may need to have that explained to you like I just did <laughs> by our producer, Samantha. But it's a play on a song and basically it means we all wanted more of a normal or a, a pre-COVID summer experience. But we know that a case cases have spiked in COVID-19 across the country. And that means we're all sort of still making these difficult decisions about social gatherings, where to mask where to travel, and all of this as the school year's approaching. And we know the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued guidance last month that everyone in high transmission areas should wear masks indoors, regardless of their vaccination status. But there's still some confusion, anxiety about what's going to happen next. So this hour, we're going to talk about making those decisions, the latest public health guidance, and how all of this is really affecting our mental health. And we want to hear from you, too. What questions do you have about masking, social gatherings? What are you weighing coming up in the next few weeks or months? Are you experiencing decision fatigue as we experience this surge? The phone lines are open. Please do give us a call. We're at 651-227-6000. That's 651-227-6000. Or you can tweet me at Nina Moini. That's M-O-I-N-I. All right, let's bring in our guests. First, we have Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi joining us. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic, joining us from Rochester this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Nina. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. We have Dr. Cecilia Tamori, who is Director of Global Public Health and Community Health at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, joining us all the way from Baltimore. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And we have Kathleen Voss, who is a marketing professor in the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Professor, thank you for being with us this morning, joining us from Minneapolis. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. So I, I want to start with you, uh, Dr. Roger Poxky, because I think that uh, we heard another development right this morning, and we heard that the FDA has approved uh, booster shots for people with uh, weakened immune systems. And to me, this was just sort of another perfect example of the developments that are constantly happening with a situation like the pandemic, where it's impacting all of us on these different levels. But you hear something like this and you think maybe, well, how does this impact me here uh, in my community, in my home? Maybe if you're not a person with a weakened immune system, things like this still impact us all, right? Can you talk a little bit maybe about the implications? Yeah, so uh, we have just heard that the FDA has uh, authorized use of a third dose of vaccination for um, people who have weakened immune systems. And what we've learned since vaccines have been rolled out is uh, this group of patients, um, even after two doses of vaccines, not all of them will uh, develop a strong protective response yeah. to COVID-19. Um, and so this is just another example of how we're having to kind of learn as we go in this pandemic situation, not obviously something we've faced before, but as we get new information, um, we are seeing that we're having to, to change or introduce new recommendations related to that. Yeah. And with speaking of recommendations, I want to just take a minute to to kind of talk about, you know, how that is sort of it feels like it's sort of different everywhere right now. And Dr. Tamori, I know that you've written um, recently about sort of the the social contracts, you know, that we all sort of live by in this model of uh, individual responsibility over health and sort of how that's working out um, for the country. What is your, your sense for how that's going right now? 
Unfortunately, not very well. And, mm-hmm. and that is part of the reason why we wrote the commentary that we did. But we started working on this earlier in the spring, um, in May. Um, and academic journal time is not the same, of course, mm-hmm. as sure. uh, pandemic time. But, um, but our overall message, unfortunately, remains the same. And, and I think that is partly what is so challenging about this pandemic. Absolutely. You're seeing new data every week. And that is, of course, important and essential to respond to. But part of what we are arguing in with my co-authors is that we really need to reorient the way that we think about the pandemic in the first place. And that if we do so, then we are able to respond to novel situations more effectively. So thinking about the pandemic, not in terms of individual ways, but rather emphasizing our collective responsibility towards one another and really centering health equity and human rights allows us to have a very different kind of approach. And that way, when we have new challenging situations like this more recent uh, rise of variants, we're able to respond more effectively. So if we had these principles in mind earlier, in the spring, we would have thought about how communities work together, who might be left behind when mm. various restrictions are lifted. And I, I think that was um, deeply troubling to us, the idea of a narrative that emphasizes this uh, notion that, you know, everything is determined by simply individual actions, when we know that those actions are shaped by much larger social factors. Right. And already seeing, you know, who's being left behind, right, in in the situation that we're in currently. Oh, absolutely. And we we actually saw this, you know, throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think this this is what we're so troubled by is that these patterns have been ongoing since the beginning of the pandemic. The pandemic is uh, never a force of, you know, equalizing, you know, there was this rhetoric early on that we're all in the same boat and, and we're, we're in the same storm. We're not in the same boat. Some people are on yachts. Mm. Other people are hanging on, you know, with a piece of wood, you know, barely. And, you know, and many have, have perished and suffered in, uh, in a preventable uh, pandemic, you know, in a preventable series of uh catastrophes. And so we've seen inequities deepen throughout last year. And we um, were hopeful that there would be more of an emphasis on collective and health equity and human rights. And and what we're uh, troubled by is that we feel that the emphasis has sort of disappeared or uh, has not been emphasized adequately in the last few months. And so we're drawing attention to that because we actually saw people being left behind already, even as the vaccination efforts were rolling out early on. Mm -hmm. And so that's troublesome, right? The the idea of who gets left behind when there isn't more um, uniformity, I guess, in in regulations. And Professor Voss, I think that's sort of in, in line with your work as well, because not only do certain people get left behind, but this idea of individual choice and uh, responsibility that that puts on individuals as well can be difficult. And that's what sort of decision fatigue is all about, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. I was listening to the other panelists and thinking how much this resonates with my own 
research, which is that when the burden of responsibility for making the decisions falls on individuals themselves, it can be incredibly stressful. On top of which, we've been going through decision fatigue um, in various forms for the last 16, 18 months. Mm -hmm. And I think more challenging was um, the notion that we could probably let down our guard. Some folks thought maybe in May, maybe earlier this summer, only to find that we're thrust right back into uncertainty, stress, and worry and a state of vigilance again. So it's incredibly taxing on a psychological level. Yeah, and you're talking about May because of the lifting um, of mask mandates and, and things like that. Do you think that at that time, it was sort of like, I don't know, it seems sort of like some people are so sick of making decisions that they've just started to pretend the pandemic is over? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think for many reasons, some people are pretending that the pandemic isn't over. But really, also, too, I, I, I don't know. I, I think we weren't really prepared, and I'm not sure whose responsibility that was, but I think we weren't really prepared for the fact that we could have a lot of folks be vaccinated and still have a mask mandate, that those two things are not incompatible. Um, I do think people were under the impression um, for an, in large part that once vaccines were widely available, that we could relax and sort of, you know, get back to normal right. life and have our own hot vac summer. But um, <laughs> it isn't turning out to be that way. And now again, stress, worry, personal responsibility. And it is not really clear these days what the right decision is because of the very fluid, very rapidly changing dynamics of the situation. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, I do want to go to a caller now as we're all uh, weighing decisions. Christopher in uh, Traverse, sounds like you're weighing uh, travel to Greece. Yes, good morning from good Traverse morning. City, Michigan. I um, oh, am cool. weighing my <laughs> personal responsibilities as far as becoming a potential carrier and uh, spreading COVID versus uh, concerns about my well-being. Uh, traveling to Greece, it is uh, kind of a hotspot area, but flying overseas right now, one does require a COVID test before entry into that country mm -hmm. and masking and staying away from nightclubs and uh, un, you know not so safe public modes of transportation. Um, I'm just trying to assess the overall risk and whether or not uh, I can minimize it enough to go and if I might be, you know, uh, spreading it to loved ones, a 90-year-old aunt sure. in, in Greece, for example. Right. Thank you for calling. And Traverse City is so lovely there, um, Christopher. Thank you for calling. Dr. Tamori, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, because what's striking to me is that I mean, you can go online and see, you know, what the recommendations are for travel for every country and, and, you know, what needs to be done. But to what we've sort of been talking about already this morning, when things change and are in flux, it's almost like people want somebody else to talk to them, like their doctor or somebody, and that maybe some of those, uh, you know, directions are, are not even enough for people anymore. What do you think about that? I agree. I, I think that we have essentially left people to their own devices. And, mm. and that really, um, you know, like the other panelists said, it, it causes a lot of stress and a lot of decision fatigue. But I also feel that, you know, we are abandoning our responsibility to the public um, and mm. particularly people who do not have the same access to information 
as people who are highly educated, you know, wealthier, able to, to, you know, locate these resources. And that really, really troubles me. Mm-hmm. The second piece of that, and that's related directly to your call, is, you know, I'm not sure that we're communicating to people the level of emergency that we're in. Hmm. And that has been really weighing on me. And I know lots and lots of colleagues as well. Um, you know, when I look at the current state of the pandemic, and if we step back for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and we pretend that maybe uh, we're, a, you know, just, you know, looking down, you know, at, at a different uh, civilization or a different setting, and you just look at what's happening here, what we have created is this idea of safety, you know, maybe an illusion of safety where people, some people who have access to vaccine, which is a very small group of people globally, mm-hmm. right? Um, feel that, you know, their life is quote unquote back to more normal. And this was, um, echoed by, you know, lots of high profile people and media narratives, right? Mm-hmm. But when you look at the reality on the ground is what we're seeing is a crisis situation, an That's absolute difficult. crisis, both here and uh, much more acutely globally. You know, with vaccinations barely accessible to millions of people in the world. And so, so I'm looking at it, you know, sort of in, in that larger context. And, you know, if you look at where we are with transmission just in the United States, um, compared to last year, you know, we have higher number of cases now. On a, on a, you know, if you're looking at our curve, if you just look into any of the trackers that come from, you know, Johns Hopkins uh, COVID database and, you know, on all the major newspapers, you can just see this rise and it is a mm-hmm. terribly sharp rise. And so we're having exceptionally high case rates. And we don't just have that. We have enormous numbers of hospitalizations that are crushing the healthcare system in many settings. There's hardly any ICU beds. Some areas have no ICU beds at all. And so I'm looking at it in that context and whether people, you know, really should be asked to navigate this on their own, you know, in some situations, we really, um, we need to take some um, more uh, hands-on approaches and multi-layered approaches to reducing transmission. And I don't think that we should be encouraging uh, lots of travel, um, both domestically or internationally, precisely because of the opportunities for transmission. So, you know, so I, I'm not sure that an individual you know, is really in that position to be able to make these kinds of decisions without, you know, public health leadership and and uh, national political leadership articulating the level of crisis that we're in. And, you know, so I guess to address the caller's question, I, I would be concerned. I think okay. that, you know, we don't, we are just starting to get the kind of data that we need to be able to tell how much transmission is possible from vaccinated people to other people. And I think that what we're seeing and what caused that level of alarm that changed that public health recommendation that I wish, you know, wasn't (laughs) changed in the first place in May, but to change it back is because of those concerns about potential transmission from vaccinated people. 
um, especially right after becoming infected. So yes, vaccination absolutely reduces horrendous outcomes for the person who has received vaccination. And I just want to reinforce that it's, you know, because I think there's also that element that's floating around, which is that, oh, you know, if there's potential transmission, then vaccination is not worth it anymore. And and I just, I want to counter that right away. Like, it's essential, of essential course. for people to be vaccinated, mm-hmm. but transmission is possible from vaccinated people. And I would be concerned about a potential transmission to somebody who is vulnerable. Absolutely. Sure. Another one of those the decisions that people are having to make. Uh, I just want to give the call out again for anybody who wants to call and kind of tell us about what they're experiencing right now. It's 651-227-6000. That's 651-227-6000. Or you can tweet me at Nina Moini. My last name spelled M-O-I. And I and Dr. Roger Poxy, I just want to go to you because, you know, here in Minnesota, we've reached 70 percent, right, with our our vaccination rate. It was later than, uh, you know, maybe that we had hoped. But as we're talking about people making decisions who are vaccinated, uh, we also are thinking a lot about our our children, right, in our populations uh, under 12 or who are are not vaccinated. And some some of those people, you know, those families are traveling as well, or people are going back to school. Uh, what are you hearing from uh, the families and people that you're encountering? Yeah, Nina, you know, so that's a really great point. And families are in a really challenging position uh, through the summer and going into the school season because we do not yet have um, any authorization for use of a vaccine in kids under 12 years of age. So you've got a mix of potentially vaccinated older uh, uh, children and parents, but maybe with younger children in the family who are are not vaccinated. And how do you make these decisions about what you're doing this summer and returning to school in the fall is extremely complicated, as as we've all been uh, talking mm-hmm. about so far. I think even as an infectious disease specialist with a pretty nuanced understanding of viral transmission, I often feel like just going out in public, I'm having to do complex calculus uh, <laughs> equations in my head to figure out what I should be doing, so I can only imagine um, for the general public how how challenging uh, this is. Um, Families have been asking us a lot of questions in our our clinic. Um, We see the fear in our families with uh, children who are immunocompromised who have organ transplants or have had a recent bone marrow transplant, um, especially with some of the variable recommendations around masking in school setting, for example, um, and how that's impacting their decisions going into the fall. I think we were all very hopeful that um, this would be a bit of an easier transition back to the school year. And unfortunately, we're just not not in a position that that's going to be the case. Um, and so definitely, uh, families are, are struggling. And this is a difficult time and complicated uh, factors that go into to making these decisions, because they impact us on multiple levels, as has already been pointed out, there are individual child specific factors, when people ask us questions in our clinic that we have to take into account, in terms of their risk for Uh, developing severe disease. Um, There's family level factors. Who else is in the family? Are there high risk members within the family who would be at risk for severe disease if they were uh, exposed or infected? Um, And then what is happening in each community around the country also is is slightly different. And so um, that is part of where the complexity of this decision making comes in and makes it very challenging. It is so challenging. And I want to go to the phones now. Chris and Brainerd has a story looks like about a breakthrough case. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Good morning. What's your story you wanted to share? 
Well, so about a month or so ago, I got really sick, and this, this was after getting both shots, you know, about a month or so before, and uh, it was three days of having really bad cold. It went to my sinuses and then went to my respiratory system, and oh. even a month later, I still have a lingering cough that uh, just won't go away, and I didn't go in and get tested because I had the vaccine, if I, if to me, if I went in and got tested and they tell me that's what it was, it didn't, it wasn't going to change my behavior. I was still going to isolate and just work through what I had. But sure. my, my thought through the whole thing was with how bad I felt with that, if it was COVID, I can only imagine how bad it would have been for me without the vaccine or for somebody else that wasn't vaccinated. It, it probably would have been just incredibly serious. So it was, it was kind of an eye opener to me. That's a really important point. Um, And that, you know, I want to go to Professor Voss on that, because when people are hearing so many different stories, does that um, does it seem to give less weight to to guidance, that confusion? What do you think about that? Um, It can have that effect. Um, There's a a very robust phenomenon um, in the field of behavioral economics that speaks to exactly that, that personal experiences and narratives, especially ones that they're hearing um, more recently, can really weigh heavily on the mind. And then that pales in comparison to dry statistics or maybe um, policy-sounding statements that are coming from a distant source. So, yeah, I mean, stories like that can really make an impact. I mean, I'll be honest, listening to the caller made me realize that you know, when we when we talk about the risks of being exposed to COVID, if you're vaccinated, I mean, it's clear that you're not very likely to end up in the hospital. But by the same token, being really sick like that doesn't sound very fun either. And I think that can add to people's uh, calculus as to the level of risk that they're willing to tolerate with right. the possible outcomes being more present in their mind. Yeah. Dr. Tamori, I mean, if you are vaccinated, can you still become a long hauler if you're asymptomatic or what what are the what's the data they're showing? Uh, you know, it was funny that you asked that question because I had that in mind as I was listening. But the other piece that I wanted to bring in is that in this case with the caller who didn't get tested, that case would not be captured in our data. Right. And I, right. I think that that's something really important to point out before we, you know, look at uh, the long hauler yeah, situation. Please get tested. Yeah. yeah, please get tested because we need to actually have a sense of how much transmission is taking place among people who are vaccinated and to be- to have a better sense of how um, severe those cases are. And, and of course, I am absolutely thrilled that uh, the caller did not end up um, hospitalized. Yeah. And, and I think he's absolutely right. You know, I just want to reinforce, he's absolutely right that by being vaccinated, you know, and I know some of your listeners may still be concerned about it, but this is exactly what we're dealing with now. We have this highly transmissible variant and much more so than the original virus that we were dealing with last year. And we're doing a lot less on yeah mitigation. And so we're essentially letting it go, which is really, really frightening for those of us working in public health. And I'm sure um, my colleagues can talk about this as well. But, you know, this is a really uh, emergent kind of situation. So we need to capture as much data as possible. And on the front of the 
long-term implications, I think the answer is it's very difficult to get a good sense of the prevalence of that condition if we don't know how widespread the cases may be among those who are, are vaccinated. So you need what you need is really systematic sampling and good solid studies to be able to tell us how common long COVID may be in these kinds of cases, right? We don't sure. even have, you know, adequate data on the, the prevalence of long COVID um, in, in general from, you know, infection with the virus without vaccination, partly because of the way in which sampling is done. So there's now, you know, analyses that bring together different kinds of data sets. But again, you know, you really need the kind of data that you need to be able to estimate prevalence in different kinds of populations, because you would expect that the prevalence may not be the same, you know, among younger or older people or people with different kinds of underlying health conditions. You need, you know, really, really large and uh, systematic studies. Yeah, that's such an important reminder. Thank you for that. Please, uh, everybody, continue to get tested, uh, even if you're vaccinated. We have our guests today, which include Dr. Nipuni Rajapaksi, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Dr. Cecilia Tamori, who is the Director of Global Public Health and Community Health at the John Hopkins School of Nursing. And Kathleen Voss, a marketing professor in the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much again to our guests. I want to go right to the phones to Beth in Minneapolis. Hi there, Beth. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. What's your uh, question? Um, I'm I'm paranoid. I'm scared. Huh. <laughs> I want to go to the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, mm-hmm. and and we're going to open in the next couple of weeks. Okay. On top of this, we have shows in Texas who are actually now mandating that participants be vaccinated. Mm. I don't get why it is so hard for people in this country to understand. This isn't about you. It's about all of us. And the longer that people don't get vaccinated, the worse this is going to get. It's difficult. Yeah. So so your question, you're wondering what about sort of these large gathering settings? How, how do I transition that anger, one? And how do I keep my people safe through all of this? I sure. just don't know. Sure. Uh, Dr. Tamori, do you want to do you want to take a, a, a stab at that? Uh, I mean, okay, so from a public health perspective, we should not be having large gatherings. I think that this is, you know, step one, you know, if you look at the evidence and the discussions that we had throughout the last year, we know that we need to look at transmission levels in different settings. And of course, you know, in a crisis situation, which is what we're dealing with right now, we also need to look at things like hospital capacity. And what we're seeing is that hospital capacity is becoming overwhelmed in many different states. We have absolutely overwhelmed the health systems in Florida, in Texas, in Mississippi. We are running out of pediatric ICU capacity in many of these settings. Um, so we are dealing with actually some of the terrible scenarios that we were talking about last year, the concern that hospital systems and healthcare systems will be completely overwhelmed. And I think 
it's very clear that in those areas of extremely high transmission, there cannot be large gatherings, right? And and obviously that that is a, a challenge is that the state leadership in some of those cases has actively undermined our ability to keep people safe. Dr. Roger Poxy, what do you think about these large gatherings? I, I completely agree with what Dr. Tamori just outlined. We know that transmission happens when you have many people together, especially in indoor and crowded spaces. And so allowing that to happen is setting up people in a situation where we will see see transmission, especially with such a hypertransmissible variant um, circulating now. So absolutely, um, yeah. until we, we see rates dropping significantly, um, we would, do not encourage anyone to attend uh, large gatherings because that's just a setup for increased transmission. And recognizing that every new person that gets infected with this variant is an opportunity for another variant to arise. And um, that's that's still very much uh, possible going going into the situation that we are, especially if, if events like this continue. Well, yeah. And I have a tweet here from someone who says, I'm bummed. I don't know if I should take my two kids who aren't vaccinated uh, to the state fair this year. Uh, Professor Voss, how hard is it for people to sort of uh, reckon with what public health officials are saying, like we're hearing here today on the show, and then what the rules are, um, and sort of people, you know, back and forth on, well, maybe we'll do a mask mandate at this one individual event, or, you know, the cities or the municipalities can do them if they want. Uh, How hard is it for people to grapple with that? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. I mean, in some ways, it's, even though there's more of a chance for people to be able to um, decide for themselves whether they want to adopt some of these measures, for the same reasons, it's more challenging for people to be able to make those very decisions because now it is up to them as individuals and the, the, the calculus is changing quite a bit. You have venues such as First Ave here in Minneapolis which is requiring that the people who enter be vaccinated or show proof of a negative COVID test as a way to try to keep people safe. And you've got other um, settings in which there's really just no no requirement or no uh, mandate about public health whatsoever. And so when you've got that kind of a range, it leaves people really confused. And that opens the door for people to kind of find um, evidence, so to speak, that supports their own position. So if they believe that it's really not that dangerous, then they can point to events not mm-hmm. having mask mandates, not having vaccine mandates and say, see, like, it's like, like our trusted officials are not saying that this is something that we need to be doing. So therefore, I don't need to be doing it either. So when there's that kind of confusion, people can just overlay on top of it what they want to already believe And that confirmation bias then can lead people to just continue down a path that supports what what they already wanted to do, whether or not it's informed by public health. It's so hard. And there's also misinformation and disinformation um, on top of all that. But I do want to go to the phones uh, because Carol in St. Paul, I think, is going to make a really important point that it's not all, you know, fun and games. And are we going to go to, you know, the festivals this year? Uh, Carol, I understand you're concerned about your job and how that may impact your family. I am. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. So I'm a fully vaccinated grandmother that mm-hmm. works in a restaurant. And I chose to mask back on a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. My grandchildren are not old enough to be vaccinated. Yeah. And I am terrified 
about getting them sick. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So, decision fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> These I are real decisions. Do I back on with them or not see them? Yeah. Thank you, Carol. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, Dr. Roger Posse, you hear that, um, you know, just this difficulty and this, these troubles that people are having, anyone with kids around them, you know, I imagine it's a scary time. What is your advice? And then how close are we to, to being able to vaccinate children? Yeah, so I'm so sorry, Carol, because I can just hear hear the, the pain and the difficulty of this situation in your, your voice there. And we have so many, a lot of focus has been on people who have chosen not to not to be vaccinated, but we have so many people that are making the responsible decision and getting their, their vaccines like you have. And um, there's a, a limit to what we can do to protect our kids. And our kids are really depending on the adults here in this situation to to make the right decision to protect them until there's a vaccine available for them. So thank you for, for making that decision. I think um, we're still a bit of a ways away for having a vaccine for, for kids. Um, there are trials that have been ongoing um, and rolling through the summer, both Pfizer and Moderna, yeah. um, and we anticipate uh, some data from them um, towards the, the end of September. Uh, there's been some work with the FDA to recently um, increase, try and increase the number of children in the trial and to obtain uh, longer follow-up information for them. And we're still working to understand the impact that those uh, decisions might have on uh, timeline for getting results, but I know as pediatricians, as as parents, as grandparents, um, we're all really just waiting until we can can do more to protect our our kids. And vaccination will be will be a big part of that. Um, and they're really going through all the steps to make sure that when a vaccine does get authorized, that it is a safe and effective vaccine for children. So. Unfortunately, we're not not quite there yet with that information. But until we are, it, kids are depending on on the adults around them to to get vaccinated, to get get protected, um, because that pretends some additional protection for for age groups that can't be vaccinated yet. Thank you so much, doctor. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you to everybody who works in those types of roles and and jobs and our essential workers. Um, you just hear the agony in that grandmother's voice, but I also hear some agony in your voices as as people, as doctors and people who work in public health. I mean, Dr. Tamori, what what are your thoughts on just um, kind of wanting to wave this flag and, and let people know in your profession and then kind of feeling like at every turn it's, it's not working the way that you wish? Um, we have to keep at it. I think this is sort of, you know, obviously, we, you know, like I said, we wrote the commentary that we did, not, you know, because we had any time, but because we yeah. made time, because we really felt that it needed to be said that we needed a different kind of approach. And I really still believe that we have the opportunity to do this, but we have to work together. And, and we have to organize across communities of public health, um, healthcare professions, you know, physicians, nurses, um, everyone at the state and federal and local governmental level and any other concerned people, we have to really work together to communicate better about these issues, about collective responsibility. I think we need a very clear set of messages coming from the top about what it is that we need to be doing. We have waited for transmission to rise to respond. 
what we need to do is A, immediately act to reduce transmission and B, prevent further harm. And that involves putting on those masks everywhere we are indoors, protecting workers, issuing really strong workplace protection so that no worker can be exposed at work because we do not have um, regulations around masking, because we do not impose any sort of restrictions on you know, ventilation, about uh, providing vaccinations to people. There are still millions of people who have access challenges related to vaccination, many of them um, highly marginalized. Um, for example, on the verge of eviction, people struggling to put food on the table. I think we're really overlooking these groups. Um, yeah. And another group that I wanted to highlight is, you know, um, pregnant people, um, lactating people have had very little outreach until very recently, and they're highly vulnerable um, and also, you know, really need those kinds of outreach efforts. So we really need a reorientation in our approach altogether with very clear messaging and collective organizing. Professor Voss, does this work anymore for people? Uh, does hearing a story like Carol's and hearing that agony um, I mean, have we reached a point where the public just seems to have fatigue and sort of, again, just acting like it's over and, and maybe not rallying together the way we used to at the beginning? Well, I think I think to some degree that may be the case. I mean, unfortunately, with this pandemic, we've been pretty saturated with stories, many, many, many of them very much uh, heartfelt and tugging at our heartstrings. And so Carol's story really resonates with that as well. I mean, I think to some extent it, it does um, have less of an effect, but I think that there's a segment of the population that's really struggling still to understand what to do. Hmm. Um, I mean, at, at one point, for example, like let's take it, let's take like a year ago when there was uh, maybe mask mandates that were more commonly employed, there wasn't that much to be decided on an individual basis. And we all and I don't mean all, but like many of us sort of understood that there were certain situations that were risky and others that were not. And now that we've got some folks who are vaccinated for whom the risk of ending up severely ill is very, very low. Other folks who are not vaccinated, that just makes it um, it's confusing once again in a, in a very new way. And so I think hearing those stories is going to be impactful for those individuals who are in what we would call like a search mode. When people mm -hmm. are in search mode for information, then they're really open and porous to try to um, for that for that knowledge to come in. Other folks who have already decided what they think or what they believe, to use the operative verb these days, uh, then the stories may have less of an impact. Yeah, just important to recognize that so many people are, are still suffering and still having difficulties, um, and particularly in in their lines of work too. I want to go to Jason in Duluth, who's on the phone with us. Hi, Jason. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. What did you want to share? Yeah, I just had a question for the panel, and my friends and I have been discussing the thoughts on um, vaccine mandates that are coming in different hospital settings, and if that should be something we should roll out to the public, or if there's, you know, I guess, yeah, there are general thoughts on vaccine mandates. What do you think, Dr. Roger Poxy? <laughs> So um, I think, yes, we have seen, especially in the last few weeks, increasing um, mandates in vaccination in certain 
areas or certain fields. Um, I think uh, we know that vaccination obviously protects not just the individual themselves, but the people around them. And in, in healthcare settings are settings where we are taking care of people who may be higher risk for having a serious outcome if they were to be infected with COVID-19. So I think these are uh, tricky. I think they have to be very thoughtful in how they're they're rolled out. Um, but I think there there's no controversy uh, that uh, the more people that are, are vaccinated, the safer we all are. And if that's something that helps yeah. uh, ensure more people are vaccinated, then that helps to protect our patients and people we're caring for. Sure. We have another um, comment here. It's a question from Tim and in Inkley who says, should we wait until we have symptoms to get tested or should we be uh, testing as many people as possible? He's just wondering, you know, are people still getting tested at the rates that they were? Should we be doing more testing? What do you think about that? So um, I think uh, certainly if someone is symptomatic, they should be tested, um, especially in our pediatric population. We are seeing now also increasing rates of other respiratory viruses like RSV, for example, or parainfluenza virus that causes croup. And many of these things, especially in, in kids, you can't tell just by looking at someone whether they might have COVID-19 or one of these other viruses. And as we work to understand the, the epidemiology and the spread of, of uh, COVID-19, I think it's important if you have uh, respiratory symptoms that you, you get tested, as was also mentioned um, earlier. I think um, there are still recommendations if you know that you've been exposed um, to get tested, because that can help to, to pick it up and prevent further transmission to others. And so there are, are a variety of scenarios Scenarios where it is uh, still highly encouraged uh, for people to get tested. I think if you have questions, um, getting getting tested, talking to your healthcare provider is probably the best place to go um, to understand whether you should get a test or not. Okay, that's good. Um, I do want to go to Linda in Minneapolis now. Hi, Linda. Hi. I live in a 55-plus condo building, and just last month we restarted having potlucks, you know, after 18 months or whatever. Um, and now we're facing, you know, we're trying to make the decision of whether we should be having potlucks again or not, you know, because of the Delta variant. Sure. I would say about 90% of our population is vaccinated, but of course we don't know, you know, a hundred percent, you know, um, so. Yeah. I I mean, you're, you're not unique in, in what you're wondering, right? I mean, this is all important stuff from, from jobs to just gathering with people again, uh, sharing meals, sharing food. Uh, Dr. Tamori, I, I feel like we sort of thought we were going to be doing that this summer. We thought we were going to sort of be in the clear for that type of stuff. I mean, what do you, th- if I'm listening to the conversation today, I'm thinking, no, you know, I mean, we, so we don't know. I think that the caller identified the key issue. Uh, we don't know if everyone is vaccinated. And so you could come into contact with somebody who, close contact with somebody who is unvaccinated. One of the reasons why um, events where food sharing takes place is particularly alarming is because you cannot mask while you are eating or drinking. That is why some of those gatherings become uh, opportunities for transmission. And so... I think, you know, with masking and, uh, you know, distancing outdoors, if there's no food sharing, that would be uh, a lower risk activity. 
if it and I know that uh, the weather, you know, can uh, become either hot or cold in uh, Minnesota. So if you're indoors because it's too hot or you're indoors because it's too cold, then all of a sudden those dynamics change. So the opportunities for transmission are much, much higher indoors with people clustering. So I, you know, I would say if if you want to have social events right now, I would limit the size. I would consider moving it outdoors and I would not do the the food sharing part where people can be unmasked. So more like we were doing uh, like last summer or, you know, earlier on um, in the pandemic. Uh, There's one question here. Uh, that I want to get to. Erica says, I have kids going into sports who are not vaccinated. Uh, can the guests talk about youth transmission rate outdoors? So again, the theme of being outdoors. Dr. Roger Poxy, what do you think? Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of parents asking you about that. Yeah, so um, we know that uh, transmission outdoors is much less likely to occur than in indoor settings. So sports in an outdoor setting, um, definitely lower risk than in an indoor setting. Transmission risk uh, depends on the the type of sport, though, um, and obviously uh, vaccination status of the people uh, who are participating and whether they're masked or not. So a lot of, again, factors to to consider when you're trying to determine risk here. Um, Certainly sports where there's inherent distancing incorporated, like baseball, for example, will be lower risk than a sport where you're in very close face-to-face contact um, mm-hmm. with someone else. And so I think it's difficult to give kind of a blanket answer to that question. Um, but certainly, yes, outdoor sports will have a, a lower risk than, than indoor uh, sports, especially sure. right now with Delta variant. And just it sounds like you're saying keep in communication with your doctors and uh, just keep in communication about these, you know, topics because they're not going away. Uh, We've just a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask each of the three of you if there was just one thing that you think would be really helpful to get us kind of out of, you know, where we're at. Um, Dr. Roger Poxy, do you want to go first? Yeah, I would say uh, vaccination. Everyone over 12 years of age is eligible to get vaccination. We know it's safe. We know it's highly effective in preventing hospitalizations and deaths. So if you have not yet uh, gotten your vaccine, please do do that. Dr. Tamori, what do you think? I think we really need to work on reorienting the values towards that collective responsibility model that I have discussed and to ensure that no one is left behind. So I, I absolutely agree that vaccination is uh, should continue and all the outreach efforts that we should be doing should be maximizing that, but we need additional strategies uh, multi-layered approaches and social supports to enable people to be able to comply with some of these recommendations. And we really need to act like we are in the emergency that we really are in. Yeah, it sounds like you're saying that there's sort of a failure in messaging right now. There needs to be some stronger messaging going on. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Voss, I mean, uh, until there is messaging like that or without that, uh, what do you think would be would be helpful right now, just from a more psychological, I guess, standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, it probably is wise to err on the side of caution. So um, assuming that you're going to be wearing a mask everywhere and then just take that out of the equation. Um, my employer at the University of Minnesota has mandated masks and 
in a very big way, that's a relief because now I know that all my colleagues, my students and myself are gonna be masked all the time just from the jump. So we don't have to make that decision for ourselves. And then in that way we can avoid making a mistake that would impact us for much longer. Right, and if you're thinking, should I put my mask on, just put it on, right? Um, thank yeah. you so much today to all three of my guests, Dr. Napuni Rajapaksi, Dr. Cecilia Tamori, and Kathleen Voss. I really appreciate the three of you, and thanks so much to our callers as well. Today's episode was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. You can hear Dan Crocker, Nina Moyni, Chris Farrell, and other guest hosts during a live call-in show at 9 a.m. weekdays throughout the month of August. Looking for Carrie Miller? She's back talking about books and ideas at 11 a.m. every Friday starting September 10th. Thanks for listening.